0: The God that we serve is able, or our God is able to deliver, and we need to believe that. Not that God performed miracles, because there's no need for him to perform the miracle, but that does not change his power and influence as far as controlling the things of this world is concerned. God will have the last say. He always has, and he always will, to the one that believes him. And lives in the hollow of his hand and beneath the shadow of his wing, may live in confidence and faith that all will be well. So I want to pursue that tonight to encourage us further, to realize that in spite of the things that there may be that discourage, we have more than enough to encourage us and to help us deal with whatever <clears throat> difficulties and problems we may face from time to time. God can take the tragedies of life and turn them into blessings. And I mentioned two of them, but I want to mention two more. I mentioned the life of Joseph and how he became a blessing to himself, to his family, and to the world. The Egyptian bondage became a blessing in that it enabled God to reveal himself to nations that were living in pagan darkness. When he took a nation that was slaves and freed them, from the most powerful king that the world had ever known at that time, that became a revelation to all the rest of the world. Indeed, that's what the ninth chapter of the book of Exodus says. And I mentioned how that Rahab said, we have heard how he dried up the Red Sea. I delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, and she said, that's made the hearts of the Canaanites to melt. But again, moving on in the Old Testament, there are two other incidents that I'd like to mention. During the dark days of the reign of Ahab in the northern kingdom, there arose a prophet by the name of Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah comes on the scene, and the very first words that he announces is that there'd be a thing. There'd be no rain because of the wickedness of the northern kingdom of uh, the leadership that Ahab. But in connection with that, God told him to leave the land of Canaan and go over into a neighboring country. And there he had come to a place named Zarephath. There'd be a widow there. And 1 Kings 17 tells about Elijah going over to where that widow was, and she was on the verge of starvation. When Elijah found her, he said, Bake me a cake. And she said, Bake you a cake. All I have is enough meal and oil, and I'm fixing to cook this, and then I think my child and myself will be facing starvation. Elijah said, Bake me a cake first. And she did what Elijah said. And you know the story of how the meal barrel always had plenty. That was always all. But we should keep in mind that during this time of famine in the land of Canaan, when God's people had forgotten their mission, their opportunities, and their blessings, God sent this prophet to a widow over in a Gentile country. And through this widow was able to bring life through the prophet Elijah over into that Gentile country. There was a prophet then that followed Elijah. His name was Elisha. 2 Kings 5, we have the story of Naaman, one that's very familiar. And I think so often we really overlook the important principles that that story is intended to illustrate. Generally, when that story is discussed, the emphasis is given on the fact that God told Na- uh, the prophet told Naaman to go down and dip into the River Jordan seven times, and he didn't want to do that. And, of course, that's a part of the lesson, but that's not the prime reason that that's recorded. You see, again, the nation had forgotten its mission. God wanted them to be a light to the pagan world. They were not living, so I have to reflect that light. And there was a little maid that had become a slave. Now, you think about it. Here's a little maid that's living in a foreign country, and she's serving as a slave. What a tragedy. What could life hold? Why would she not be bitter? How could she be interested and concerned about anybody else? Here was a man that was next to the king, an able man, a leader, and yet he was a leper. Would it not have been the temptation for anyone in this little slave's condition to say, Well, that's good enough of you. You made a slave out of me, and I may be a slave, but you're a leper, and I'd rather be a slave than to be a leper. That would have been easy to have said that, would Ah, oh, but this little maid, though she was a slave, became a channel of blessing and enabled the prophet Elisha to bring light down into this pagan world. Here was a man who was next to the king, one that worshipped idols, so when Word came through the little maid, there's a prophet over yonder that can heal leprosy. Naaman went to the king, and the king said, What are you trying to do? You're trying to create a war? I'm not God that I can heal. And Elijah said, There's a prophet over here. Send him. Let him come to the prophet. That's what it was all about. And so when Naaman came to the prophet, Elisha said, go dip in the river Jordan seven times, and he didn't want to do that. But finally, his men reminded him that if the prophet had asked him to do something great, he would have done that. So Naaman went and dipped in the river Jordan seven times and came away clean, healed of leprosy. But not only was Naaman healed of leprosy, he was healed of idolatry he came to know that the God of Elisha was the only true and living God. And thus this little maid as a slave, without allowing the bitterness to grip her heart, even though she had been carried into slavery, she carried the light of her God down into a pagan world. And through a man that had leprosy, Enable him to come in contact with a prophet, that through the prophet he might come to know the God of that prophet, and in knowing the God of that prophet, to be able to cast off idolatry. Isn't that a wonderful story? To take the tragedy of slavery and turn it into a blessing of healing a man of his lepers through the prophet of God and bringing life down into a pagan world. Let us learn the lesson then that the tragedies of life do not have to be the end of life. Whatever comes our way, whatever may be our lot in life, when in submission to the will of God we say, Thy will be done, that I want my life to reflect the light and the glory of God, I want men to see the true and the living God, and know that he makes a difference in the lives of me. Whenever that happens, in my life and in yours, whatever tragedy that may have be, been, then that life becomes a channel of blessing. But there's a second thing that I want to talk about tonight. Not only is God able to take the tragedies of life and turn them into a blessing, But God is able to take the petitions of prayer and turn them into realities. Have you ever read Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20? Listen to it. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now stop and think about that. Do I believe that in the power of prayer, that God is able to do above that which I'm able even to think, beyond my ability to conceive what God can do through prayer? Sometimes people get the idea, two false ideas, that it takes a miracle in order for God to answer prayer. That's not true. You read the story of Esther, and I think the story of Esther is intended to show that God does not have to perform miracles to bring about his purpose and the accomplishment of his will. Esther was also living in a foreign land. She became queen. There was a man by the name of Haman who didn't like the Jews and wanted them all killed. Her uncle... Told her whenever the decree had gone out that they're all going to be killed. Said, who knows but what you come to the kingdom at such a time as this. And when Esther was confronted with the responsibility that she had, knowing that she went into the king without being invited, it could mean death. And so she sent out the word Mordecai and all the Jews to fast, and that involved prayer. Though the word prayer is not used, the very idea of fasting carries with it the idea of earnest petition. And therefore, there's no doubt. But what the Jews, being motivated and inspired by Mordecai on bended knee, fled with God that some way, somehow, their lives might be spared. You know the story. There's not a single miracle in the book of Esther. But prayer was heard and answered. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 3.20. Who is able to do above, abundantly, exceedingly, above what we can even think or as. The other side of prayer that people, Misunderstand sometimes is that since there are no miracles, then God doesn't answer prayer. I had a good friend who was preaching up in Haleville, and some false ideas, Pentecostalism, had gotten into the church at Haleville. They'd come under the influence of that, and they'd go around to the hospital and, like some modern people today, they believe in moder- in miracles. They'd go into the hospital where somebody was sick and pray for somebody and say, Oh, Lord, heal them right now. Well, then Posey knew that wasn't true. He knew that wasn't right. And they began to pressure him. They began to say to him, Well, if God doesn't perform a miracle in healing, do you believe in praying for the sick? And he'd say, Yes. And then they'd say, well, how, then, is God going to heal if he doesn't do it by a miracle? Tell us how he does it. And, of course, he astounded. He didn't know what to say. And they kept pressuring him and pressuring him, and finally he came to Birmingham to see me. and said, I want to talk to you. And I said, Glenn, you need to realize it's not up to you to explain how God answers prayer. I can prove by the Bible that miracles are seen. Miracles and revelation went together. The miracle was to confirm revelation. When revelation ceased, miracle ceased. That doesn't mean that God doesn't answer prayer, and you've let them push you too far. You don't need to do that. You ask me how God answers prayer, and I tell you, I don't know. I know the Bible says that we ought to pray. That God hears and answers prayer. I know that he doesn't do it by a miracle. Beyond that, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I'm not bothered about it. That's something that belongs in the hand of God. And however he may want to do it, as he does it without a miracle, that's within his provision and not within mine. Several years ago, a good friend of mine, well, in fact, uh, he moved to Shades Mountain after I gave up the work, called me one day and said, I've been scheduled to speak on the lecture program down at Alabama Christian. And he said, I need some help. They have assigned me the subject, How God Answers Prayer. And I said, well, Rex, I'm sorry. You've come to the wrong fellow. I can't help you on that. And I said, furthermore, you're going to have a real short lecture. When you get up and say, I don't know, you're going to be through. It's not my business to try to explain how God answers prayer. Now, when I was at East Garden before, if you'd asked me that question, I'd answer it for you. But I've lived long enough and learned that I don't know enough to try to answer that. But I have lived long enough to be able to read my Bible, and when it says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we can either think or ask, I accept that upon its full face back. And then, on bended knee, pray to God and leave it in his hands. That doesn't mean that God answers every petition that I pray. There may be some things that I don't need. But it does mean that God hears and answers prayer. And if those of us who constitute this congregation will day by day, on bended knee, Pray, as James says, believing with all of our heart, that God will bless our efforts and bless us. There will be a new day in his guest. Things will change. Things will take place that we can't even think about. It won't be miracles. But good will come about that will be above and beyond anything that those of us here tonight can think about. And it thrills my heart to read Ephesians 3.20 to know that God can take the petitions that I send up to the throne of grace and through his infinite wisdom when they're in the interest of his kingdom and for the glory of his name, for the salvation of the world that's lost, turn those petitions into realities. Let me challenge you tonight don't let a day go by as a member of this congregation, but what you spend some time on your knees in prayer to God in behalf of this congregation, that we'll be a light in this community, that we'll reflect the light of God, and that through our lives God will be glorified and his will will be done in this community. And if we'll everyone do that and dedicate our lives to that end, those of us who are here tonight will be surprised and amazed at what will happen in our own life and what will happen in the church in the East Guest. But then again, there's another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. That is a wonderful passage. Many times when. <coughs> These passages are discussed, we usually think about it only in relationship to the contribution. And of course, it's in connection with that, that the verse is given when Paul is discussing the contribution of the Corinthians for the benefit of the needy saints that were in Palestine and Jerusalem. But in verse 8, I want you to look at it. It has our phrase. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Look at that. God is able. That's what we're talking about. The ability of God. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That ye always, and underscore that word, not sometimes, not occasionally, not once in a while, But always having all sufficiency, and underscore that little word, all, not some, not a little, in all things, and underscore that word, may abound unto every or all good works. There are five all's in that passage. If you... Take the word, every good word, and let that represent it all. And so what does he say? That God is able to make all grace abound. The resources of heaven are at our disposal. When our lives are dedicated to the will of God and to his glory and his honor, God said, I'll back you with my grace. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? How can there be faith? How can there be discouragement? How can we think about it? We can't do it. When we have heaven's resources pledged in that very passage. That's better than having a single bank here in guest. What would you think if a bank would come to East Destin and say, we pledge our resources for you doing, uh, uh, meeting your responsibilities in this community? What do you think about that? And say, all you need to do is write a check on it and we're ready to provide whatever you need. What would you be willing to do? What would you be willing to engage in? What would you be willing to plan? What would be your vision? Yet we have a promise that's better than that. Paul said that God is saved. Or Paul to the Corinthians said, Our God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. If we fail to do what we need to do, it won't be heaven's fault. It won't be because God is holding back. For he said, you do your part. You accept your responsibilities. And I will dispose of the resources of my grace to see that you can do what you need to do. That's true of the congregation, and that's true of us as individual Christians. But then, turning back to the first Corinthian letter, look back at chapter 10, and uh, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. Now listen to this verse. Thou hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faith, who will not suffer you to be attempted above that you're able, but with, will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. And so God has promised that he is able to lead us through every trial and every temptation. doesn't matter what it is, provided we're willing to accept his guidance and his direction, listen to what he has to say, and to follow his way. Isn't that a wonderful promise? How can I, facing any trial in life, holding on to the hand of God and know that he has a hold of mine, say, I ought to think of that. there's a way out for every trial, for every temptation. You remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 22? The verse begins, first verse begins by saying, after these things. You see, Abraham had been through a series of trials before the trial of offering Isaac came up. He had been growing and developing, learning. So it said, after these things, God appeared to him and said, Abraham, take now thy son, thine only son, and offer him as a sacrifice. Can you imagine what it must have been like as Abraham and Isaac went on their way. Abraham was holding the hand of God as he journeyed toward Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. But not only did he journey to Mount Moriah holding the hand of God as he came face to face with offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Have you ever thought about what that journey back home must have been? Can you sense the thrill of soul as Abraham made his way back? That trial that he had been through, God had led and seen him through it. Don't you know Abraham's life would never be the same? His faith would be stronger. His hope would be brighter. His God would be greater. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Don't forget it. There's a way out. God has said that I'll be there. But then again, turning to the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, look at verse 25. We find it again. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Think about that passage. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. The word uttermost literally means completely and fully. Under the law of Moses, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Through the atonement of Christ, The writer of this letter said he's able to save to the uttermost. Turn back now again to the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to begin reading in verse 9, and I want to show you that God can take lives that are ruined by sin and change them. Look at what 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, says. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? They not deceive, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. What a tragedy for a life to be like that. Just think about a life that's ruined with dreams, immorality, fever, covetous, revilers, extortioners. Think about the homosexuals of our day, they're mentioned. And we are told that with many that there's not anything that can be done for. Now, they're beyond hope. I don't believe that. Listen to the next verse. And such were some of you. Ah, yes, that's what they were. Think about a life stained and ruined as described in those verses. Such were some of you. But ye are what? But ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's a life that's ruined and stained with sin, but the blood of Christ washed it and made it pure and white as the driven snow. God can take a life that's ruined by sin, it matters not how deep it may have gone, in the dredges of sin, to the life that is with an unfaltering faith in him, penitent of its sin, tired and weary of the way of sin, and wash that life in the blood of his Son, and make it like that of a child that's known no sin. That's hope for every person. That's hope for all that are willing to hear and to listen, to accept, and obey. I'm glad that God can take lives that are stained by sin and make something out of them, Make them upright, noble, holy, and blameless. But I want to read another passage. Before our time is up, turn with me now to the 24th verse of the book of Jude. Listen to what Jude says. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Whenever I read that verse, it thrills my soul. Oh, I know it's been abused. Now, those who have made that passage teach the impossibility of apostasy, but the very book of Jude shows that's not so. Previous verses. But to the faithful child of God, the writer says that he is able to keep you from fall. Think about all the things that surround us today. This is a sinful world in which we live. In some ways, it's almost like Sodom and Gomorrah. In the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said the nation had become so corrupt that they didn't know how to blush. That's similar to our nation today. That's the kind of world that we live in. And young people, that's the kind of world that you live in. But if you're a Christian, let me tell you something. You don't have to be caught up in that. You don't have to be caught up in that. There's a way out. He is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless. How can that be? Weak and frail. How is it possible that one day when I stand before God My Lord can present me on that day as being false. Turn with me now to Ephesians, the first chapter. Listen to a verse. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love. Turn right on over to Ephesians chapter 5. Remember now he's talking about uh, Christians. Listen to this. Or the church. Verse 26 of Ephesians 5. That he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now listen. That he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. After I had moved to Birmingham, I was teaching in a vacation Bible school at uh, Terence City. And as I was teaching in the vacation Bible school at Tarrant City, we were studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, when I read Ephesians 1.4, I said, is the church at Tarrant City blameless? And they started shaking their head. And I said, maybe you didn't understand what I said. Is the church at Tarrant City blameless? And they started shaking their head. And I said, well, I've got news for you. When the Lord comes back, he's not coming at the church at Tarrant City. Because he said that's the kind he's coming back for. One that is without blame, and that is whole. Is the church here blameless? Think of that. Shake your head that way, and you're saying the Lord's not coming back after us. Let us not confuse blame less with perfection. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 14, and I want to read the first five verses. Listen to it. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having their father's name written in their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their hearts. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now look at that, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women for their virgin. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. So here are people that were redeemed. Now then, listen. And in their mouth was found no guy. Now, Mark, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That's what redemption means. That's what 1 John 1, 7-9 is talking about. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad that you're a Christian? You see, <clears throat> That promise is not made to those who do not try and to those that are not faithful. There's a great deal of difference between perfection and faithfulness. These are people that have been, been redeemed. God is able to keep us from fault and to present us without blame, faultless before the throne on that day. Won't that be wonderful when life is over? Time is no more. Men are called to stand before God in judgment. To the one that in obedience to the gospel of Christ has spent his life living faithful to the Lord, he'll stand there and through the blood of his son that cleansed his soul day by day, Jesus will say to the Father, He is without thought. And upon that basis, then will be said, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of thy Lord. That's worth a thousand words like this. That's worth giving my life for and living faithful every day. So that when that day comes, I can stand before him, cleansed through his blood, forced by his words. That's the redemption that the Bible teaches. That's my hope and your hope. That's our only hope. That's the reason that I want to give him my life every day. And as I come to the end of the day and even through the day, me, confess unto him my frailties and my weaknesses, as the man that went down to the temple to pray, not like the Pharisee that stood in self-righteousness and said, I'm glad I'm not like that other man, but like the public with bowed head, conscious of my weaknesses and frailties and the holiness and the majesty of and with bowed head, plead, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to live worthy of your grace in spite of my weakness and my frailty Cleanse me through the blood. And let the day close with the blood having cleansed me and leave me false and blameless and holy. That if I never live to see the night of another day, I'll stand before him without fault. No wonder the gospel is good news. Would you not like to be a Christian tonight? Why not then in simple faith, tired and weary of, the, you know, of sin, turning your back upon him, confess Christ as the Son of God, be buried with him in baptism, be raised a new creature in Christ? Well, you'll not be perfect. You can be faithful. Day by day, growing in his grace, until finally when you come to the end of life's pathway, that grace will sustain you, your faith expressed in obedience day by day, you can have the hope of that home that is beyond.